0: Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris Welcome to episode 46 of The Essential X-Last Where we are coming closer and closer And closer yet to finally doing this Factor 3 thing Um, This thing has been brewing since, boy, issue 26, 27, 28 uh, Whichever one Banshee first appeared in I think that's where we started our Factor 3 discussion But, boy, it's uh, going to be wrapping up soon so uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll take some more steps in that direction today. Uh, today is X-Men number 36. This had a September 1967 cover date. The story is called Hmm. Mechano or Mechano Lives, written by Roy Thomas with art by Ross Andrew. Inks George Bell, letters Sam Rosen, colors Stan G. Hmm. And edits Stan Lee. Cover price 12 cents. Now, our story opens in the middle of a home invasion. We've got a pair of robbers who have picked the wrong house to try and rob, as they somehow make it through the very, very tight defenses of Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, and find themselves being leapt upon by the bouncing barefoot Beast. Now, one of them immediately recognizes Beast as being one of the X-Men, and assumes that they just stumbled upon the mutant's secret base. Which, that's a pretty smart thing to say. But then he says that he should make like a banana and split, which makes me want to take back the, uh, the little compliment I just gave him. So we got Beast. He's leaping from one dude that he's tackling to the banana split guy, and then he gets whacked in the mush by his, uh, burglar bag. Or stealing sack. Or plundering purse. Uh, I don't know what we call it. It's it's a, it's a, it, the dude's got a bag. And it's got stuff in it. I'm guessing heavy stuff to, with which to break into things. Meanwhile, the rest of the X-Men are in the inner chamber of the mansion, trying to plan how they're going to take on Factor 3. Still. Now, Angel realizes that Beast isn't there anymore, and Cyclops says that, uh, well, Hank left a minute ago because he thought he'd heard something. But he's a big boy, and he can take care of himself. And so back to the Beast. He's still fighting, and then he gets a solid wood chair broken over his back. And I gotta say, this is a very, uh, like, cinematic layout. You know, going back and forth between the scenes, it... Almost feels ahead of its time, in a way. It's, it's interesting. It's pretty cool. Now back to the rest. They're still looking at that map of Europe, and uh, Factor 3 must be hiding out in the Alps. That is, if Cerebro isn't wrong. Which, Angel reminds us, is never the case. Cerebro has never given a false alarm. Cerebro is always on point. Um, hmm, I'd like to see that footnote, Stanley. Where's, where's that footnote at? Oh, also, they hear a bunch of racket and crashing coming from upstairs, which none of them bother to look into. After all, if Hank needs help, he'll just ping him on his Dick Tracy watch. (sighs) Now, speaking of Hank, he's regained the upper hand against the Nudniks, and he finally beats them down. Next we know, he's dragging them both into the inner chamber to show the rest of the team what he'd spent the first four pages of this issue dealing with. Now, Angel, he freaks out because these dorks now know where the X-Men live. And so, Psych has them loaded into Cerebro, where their minds are wiped, and they're giving the post-hypnotic suggestion to go to the nearest police station and confess to all their crimes. So, I I guess the students have finally surpassed the teacher. I mean, what use is Professor X now? Anyway, once the baddies are gone, the X-Men get back to business. Warren calls his folks to try and ask for some money so he and his pals can fly to Europe. but they're currently on a Caribbean or Caribbean cruise, and are unreachable. The next we see, the X-Men are in the jet hangar, where they discover that they don't have anywhere near enough fuel to fly there themselves. Might be worth noting, might be a nitpick, but uh, all five X-Men here are drawn as though they're in X-Men costumes, like the, the Blue and Golds, so even Iceman. And so I'm going to guess that Ross Andrew doesn't have all that much experience with our heroes. Anyway, now they're going to have to figure out how to come up with a scratch on their own. We do get a brief scene shift to the home invaders, spilling all the beans at the local police precinct, so uh, they are uh, going to be arrested, I'm sure. Then, back to the X-Men. Well, Gene and Warren, anyway. Who have floated into the Rolls Royce to... Mm, get this. They're going to head down to the welfare center to beg for money. No joke. Uh, they claim that their teacher is gravely ill, and without cash, he will surely die. <laughs> now the civil servant says that she would love to help, but, gonna have to be some things off the to sort out first, uh, such as contacting the kid's parents. To which Warren stammers a bit about his folks being away on a lavish cruise, which I'm sure doesn't garner all that much in the way of sympathy here at the welfare office. The lady says that they're gonna have to wait until his parents get back, then. There's just nothing else they can do about it. And so, Jean and Warren pout their way back to the rolls and drive away... In full view of the welfare office staff And a gaggle of folks who must be applying for welfare Um, And they are rather displeased That the kids, uh, looks like they tried to grift them (laughs) You know? Oh, and it's worth noting It was suggested by one of our heroes That they just cash in the roles But everything's under Xavier's name So they can't do it legally So next we know the X-Men decide to get jobs They're gonna have to earn the money Scott, Gene, and Warren Decide to try and get gigs at a local construction site Bobby and Hank have another idea, and so they break away. We'll catch up with them later. Our first group, they sneak into an outhouse or something in order to change into costume before presenting themselves to the site foreman. They ask him for a job, and he's all, hey, show me what you got. And so, Gene teleports to the top of some rigging and telekinetically raises a bunch of beams into position. Scott then loads onto Warren's shoulders and is flown up to the top of the rigging where he uses his deadly cursed optic blasts to rivet the beams into place. Uh, the foreman's impressed But before he can officially put him on payroll He's gonna have to see their union cards ruh row well, obviously our heroes don't have those And they asked the fella to make an exception But thing of it is, his hands are tied He's not gonna have his site picketed on He needs to do things the right way He does say he can try and fast-track their union membership But it'll take a few days at least It's kind of a take-it-or-leave-it sort of situation And unfortunately, our heroes are forced to leave it Speaking of leave it, uh, these dum-dums accidentally parked Xavier's rolls in front of a fire hydrant, and so the city came and towed it. Now, as luck would have it, it's here where they run into a fellow named Tom Regal, who offers to give them a ride down to the village. On the drive over, one of the X-Men spots a heavy box in Tom's back seat, which our new pal is very, very cagey about. Once down at the village here, we see what Bobby and Hank were up to. They are putting on a circus performance of sorts, juggling bowling pins and whatnot and a crowd is formed, and the people seem to be digging it. And Bobby and Hank are hoping to cash in on the looky loses as soon as the act is done. Now, Scott, Warren, and Gene, they get out of Regal's punch buggy, and they watch their pals do their thing. At the very same time, Tom Regal himself sneaks away with that heavy box. Next, we know he's atop the Washington Square arch wearing the Meccano or Meccano costume. He vows to destroy the new Memorial Library, but first, he would like to thank his pals, the X-Men, for putting on such a wonderful diversion. Uh-oh. So Beast and Iceman realize they've just been implicated in this mishagas and proceed to head for the hills. Unfortunately, Bobby ice-slides right into a mob of policemen, which seems stupid, but perhaps on-brand, I don't know. He's cuffed and strapped to a metal railing, and Bobby tries to ice his way out, but he's too weak. Though... He is still strong enough to maintain his icy form, so I don't know. Hank catches up to Mekano, Mechano, and after some trash talk gets socked in the gut, which puts him down hard. It looks like Mechano, Mechano's armor, has an exoskeleton of sorts, which makes him stronger. Next, we follow Mechano, Mechano into the library, where he proceeds to knock over some bookcases like a real badass. Scott and Warren rush into the place, but are stopped by a pair of officers who still believe the X-Men are part of this. And so Jean pops in and uh, really, really doesn't assuage their concerns here much by uh, she TKs the officers at a panel and also swipes their guns. And I mean, nothing says innocent like that, right? Anyway, Angel lunges at Mechano Meccano and gets punched in the face for his troubles. Cyclops then fires a warning shot with his deadly cursed eyes. Meccano Meccano responds by hurling a bookcase in Slim's direction which takes him off the board long enough for our baddie to make his exit. Scott and Warren eventually shake it off and give chase up to the library's audiovisual center. Inside, Mechano Mechano, is tearing up all sorts of electronic equipment. When confronted this time, he hurls a microfiche machine at Cyclops, who reveals a whole new use for his deadly, cursed optic blasts. It's ridiculous. Uh, let me explain. Scott is somehow able to stop the machine in mid-air with his blasts. And then, as he closes his visor slowly, he can gently set it down So, the optic blasts have a sort of telekinetic quality to them now? Uh, Speaking of which, why isn't Jean with them? Telekinesis, right? Oh yeah, that's because Scott ordered her to stay outside Even though she just saved their bacon a couple minutes ago Well, what are you gonna do? By now, the barefoot beast has regained his bearings And he joins Angel and Psyche in the AV lounge And, as usual, rather than attacking the baddie all at once, they do that whole one-at-a-time thing. Angel flies in first, and, well, um, he gets caught and thrown right back at his teammates. Now, at this point, Mechano Meccano, rushes to a nearby open window, and then, like, long jumps his way across the street. He comes up short, however, and only winds up being able to grab the very edge of the building across the street, and it begins to crack. And so, our villain cries out for help. Thankfully for him, Jean's down there, and she gently TKs him down to safety. And it's worth noting that she claims that she struggles to do so, even though earlier in this very day, she was TKing literal tons of iron without breaking a sweat. Uh, Meccano-Mecano uh, quickly gives up and spills the beans to the police that the X-Men weren't actually in on his sad little rampage. The assembled police are then joined by a Mr. Regal, who claims to have invested a lot of his money into this library... And so he'd really like to get some answers as to who this Meccano, Meccano, really is. And, uh, well, doy, he unmasks, revealing himself to be Tom Regal. Now he explains that he only acted out because... Daddy never paid attention to him. That's... that's real. Uh, Daddy Regal decides to not press charges against his son, and even goes as far as to apologize for neglecting him. And I'm pretty sure I already saw this episode of Saved by the Bell. Anyway, Mr. Regal then offers the X-Men his thanks, an apology, and a reward To which Beast is all, hey, give us 1500 bucks, and we'll call it even And so, Mr. Regal peels out his checkbook and makes the X-Men flush with dough And uh, maybe worth noting, 1500 bucks in 1967 is like $12,319.31 today So it's a pretty expensive flight This takes us to our wrap-up, where the X-Men are back in their civvies and they're preparing to board their transatlantic flight. Now we pan out a bit, which reveals that this entire scene is being watched by the leader of Factor 3, Dr. Claw. Well, not really Dr. Claw, of course, but uh, this time out he's wearing his more recognizable headgear. I don't want to ruin it, but if you're an X-Fan, you'll probably know it when you see it, and hopefully we'll see more of it next time. Because really, how much longer can we drag out Factor 3? <laughs> it's got to be done soon, right? We, I, I feel it. We've got to be... Maybe this entire arc is being laid out like a Silver Age comic. Like a single Silver Age comic where, you know, you got the 20 pages. 18 of them are, like, build up, right? 18 of them are getting into position, and then the last two were the big fight. And that's kind of the end of it. Maybe this is just that only stretched out into, like, two years' worth of stories. Maybe? I guess we'll find out together Because as I've mentioned Time and again, I don't remember any of this Well, maybe not necessarily any of it I'm, I'm starting to get some memories not, not really flooding back, but trickling back Because I'm starting to see some of the stars align here But uh, as for how it's going to wrap up I vaguely remember But uh, I, I guess if I have to go on record I'm just going to assume that Professor X is going to save the day At the last minute, like he always tends to do Maybe when this entire arc is done, I'll compile this all into a, uh, a collected Essentials x to the Factor 3 saga, which will probably go down as the least-listened-to X-Men podcast ever, ever created in the history of X-Men comics podcasts. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, aren't I? Let's uh, talk about this issue here, which, going back to the well here, it's uh, it was silly but fun. Um, having the X-Men as these hard-luck heroes is... It's really funny, considering everything we know about the X-Men and everything that um, folks can see about the X-Men when they're out of costume just doesn't jive with hard luck, right? They're all wearing suits, <laughs> they're all. They're driving a Rolls Royce, they're living in a mansion, and then they go down to the welfare office to beg for money. <laughs> it's just insane, and the fact that they do it with a straight face is even better. It's like, oh, we, we need money. <laughs> Give us money. When they just showed up in a Rolls Royce And Warren's suit probably cost more than most people's cars, right? So it's just a pretty insane little scene That I was not expecting to get here today And I'm so, so happy that we did um, I really dug how the X-Men's day like got progressively worse You know, we started with a home invasion Which basically got brushed off You know, they brushed it under the rug like Oh yeah, that, that kind of thing happens Throw them in the mind wipe machine, get them out of here So I mean, that that's a really bad start to a day you know, I'm pretty sure we can all agree on that But uh, the X-Men took it in stride Then they realized they have no money Then they realized they've got no gas <laughs> Then they got turned down at the welfare office Then they got turned down for jobs at the uh, construction site Then their car got towed Then they caught a ride with an insane kid Who was trying to get back at his father by burning down a library Then they get implicated in the entire gas Because, well, that crazy kid who wanted to burn down a library said that they were his accomplices. Part of me thinks if, like, Factor 3 just stopped messing around with anything, just sat back and bided their time, the X-Men probably wouldn't be around that much longer anyway. Another day or two like this, they're either going to wind up in jail, evicted from the mansion, or dead. So, I mean, Factor 3 really just needs to sit back and wait it out. Anyway, let's look at our villain here, uh, the dread Mechano, or Mechano, if you rather. This is his only appearance. I'm actually shocked that he was never brought back. I feel like uh, creators like to dig into the obscure and, and pull up, pull back characters who didn't really appear all that often. And, uh, well, this fella, he, he only appeared this one issue. I guess there was a next issue blurb last issue with a picture of him in it, but this is his only story ever. So I guess he uh, straightened up and flew right from this point on, uh, having reconciled with... Papa Regal, he's, uh, back to, uh, walking the straight and narrow, so that's, uh, that's a good thing, that's, it's, you, we don't see that happy ending all that often in these books, but, uh, I'm still fairly shocked that he's never made a comeback, never made another appearance, good guy, bad guy, in costume, out of costume, feels like the, uh, the sort of character who'd be ripe for a post-2000s reimagining, you know, and, uh, He'd probably be presented as a never having matured from the first time we saw him, so he'd still have daddy issues. They would only just be amplified a little bit more. Uh, maybe it's a good thing we haven't seen him. <laughs> maybe it's good to leave little Tom Regal in the past. and uh, I guess we could use this episode as his fake-ass comics history since, well, we just covered his entire comics history right here and now. I tell you, that really makes my job easy um, Let's talk art uh, Ross Andrew, not a name we see here very often But I really liked it It was nice, clean comics work uh, There was a little snafu with Bobby In a blue and gold outfit early on But other than that I really don't have any complaints I, I really liked the way this issue looked Overall, if you're looking for like a one-off Downtime issue with the X-Men Back in the Silver Age Check this one out I think you'll get something out of it This was a, a lot of fun to check out Something that could be read, you know, in a vacuum on its own or as part of the Factor 3 uh, overarching storyline. Anyway, that's the story. Let's hop into the mutant mailbox where we've got some, uh, semi-contentious missives from the frantic ones. Uh, Let's start with Paul in Illinois. Now, he enjoyed X-Men number 32 except for the stupid Satan Saints bit. Now, if you remember that episode and that issue, um, Satan Saints were a motorcycle club that, uh, busted into the coffee a go-go with absolutely no plan. Plan A was bust in, plan B was, I don't know, nothing. They they were, like, drove into things. Now, Paul suggests that this only served to sensationalize the public's opinion on the world's greatest sport. I guess riding motorcycles is the world's greatest sport. He limits the fact that, quote, harassment of cyclists is currently in... He also calls out the fact that these bikers were clearly riding BMW motorcycles, but referred to them as hogs or Harleys. Now, Stan replies with an actually, and he claims that among the bikers he knows, the term hog has become something of a generic term to describe all bikes. And I'm guessing this probably is coming from Roy Thomas, who, as we know, does not appreciate being corrected ever. I figure Stan would usually take something like this in stride, probably even thanking the letter hack for giving him an education on something he is not aware of. But not rascally Roy. He will never, ever admit fault. Uh, Stan also cites the fact that Peter Parker currently rides a motorcycle as proof that Marvel was not looking at harassing the biker sport or lifestyle. Next up, Don in Oklahoma has a correction Gene's power should not be called telekinesis, but rather it should be called psychokinesis. Don references page twelve of Brad Steiger's book or Steiger's book, ESP Your Sixth Sense, it's from 1966 Award books, and it states quote, telekinesis is the movement of objects seemingly caused by some force unknown to physical science. Psychokinesis is the direct action of mind on matter. But, like, neither of them are real, right? So what's the... who, who cares? Um, now, Don recommends that Stan and the gang familiarize themselves with this book, stating that not only will it help with the X-Men, but also with the ESP division of S.H.I.E.L.D., and we met them back in our 0 3 Potter, as well as Doctor Strange's ectoplasmic journeys. Stan tells Don to go F himself. No, actually, he, he thanks him for the tip, and he says that he's already sent his entire research department to try and find their library card so they can borrow the Steger-Steiger book. And hopefully not from the library that Meccano or Mecano just destroyed, I guess. Next up, Irene in Pennsylvania. Now, she congratulates Stan and Roy for tweaking the Scott and Jean relationship a little bit back in issue 32. She says that this was only her third issue of X-Men, but in reading the letters pages, she knows that the romance subplot has been brewing for quite a while now. She then attempts to bait Stan into gifting her a free subscription by stating that she's currently hoping and hoping and wishing and dreaming... That someone, wink, 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 someone gives her a sub for her birthday. Or she hopes against hope that she can somehow pull together enough Scratch to gift one to herself. Stan does not take the bait. He uh, instead offers her a free no prize. Denied. Uh, She also asks who draws the covers to X-Men, and Stan attributes those to wondrous Werner. Next is Craig in Seattle, who loved Amazing Spider-Man number 50. He says that Jazzy John, Romita, and Stan G knocked it out of the park. Well, who the hell is Stan G? I guess we can go out on a limb and guess that's Stan Goldberg, who must have done some coloring here despite not ever getting any of the credit. At least, not yet. Uh, Craig says that X-Men number 33 was also great. He says that Werner and Stan G knocked it out of the park as well. He thought the way that Roy dealt with and dispatched the juggernaut was inspired, and he liked how it kept the Factor 3 subplot cooking. Stan thanks him on behalf of Roy, who's probably still in the corner kicking puppies over being called out for referring to a BMW bike as a hog. Next up, we got Stuart in Alabama, who's writing in looking for a job at Marvel uh, as a continuity cop. Now, he claims to have over 2,000 comics in his collection. Most of them are Marvels, and uh, that, that's a lot of books for the long ago, isn't it? He also claims to have been a recipient of a no prize, which, I tell you what, didn't happen in these letters pages, but uh, I don't see any reason not to believe him. Finally, he says he's been creating files about all the Marvels he's read in order to keep everything straight. By golly, he knows more about Mary Marvel than Honest Irv. Get to the point, Stu. Um, Well, he's writing in to address a letter from issue number 32, and it's the Magneto letter. If you recall, in it, a letter hack suggested that the Magneto who appeared in X-Men number 1 was the very same Magneto who appeared in Strange Tales number 84. This is the hunk Larkin circus freak version who got his magnetic powers basically the same way the Fantastic Four got their powers, and then he wound up exiled into space. So, um, Stu posits that the letter hack in question was actually right. Despite the fact that Stan said no, they're two different people, uh, Stu says yes, yes, in fact, they were. And I think he just blew his chance at the continuity cop gig there. Um, now, he says that Hunk Larkin probably wound up on an intelligent planet after his exile into space. And then somehow returned to Earth to become the Magneto we all know and love. Stu then says that if Stan has any more questions about the books that he writes, to have Fabulous Flow get a hold of him and he'd be happy to help. I'm starting to think that Stu might be a time traveler from current year because he's Kind of being a dick about this um, Stan replies by saying Hey, you know what, pal? Go check your local phone directory to see how many people are listed with the name Magneto Which is to say, they ain't the same dude They just happen to have the same name Also, go F yourself Next we got James in Jersey He says the X-Men's costumes suck Which, I, I think Jean will be pretty sad to hear him say that She, you know, she spent a lot of time cramming him into that little box He wants uh, new threads for our heroes, and Stan says, hey, they're coming. And boy, talk about something of a monkey's poor wish, right? Uh, Hands up, who's ready for Suspender's Angel? I I know I am. Uh, We wrap up with Alex in Minnesota. He loved seeing the Juggernaut in issue number 32, and he says it was so much better than corny villains like Cobalt Man and Warlock Knee Merlin. He wants to know a little bit more about the Blob. Is he still alive? Hmm... He says in past Letters Pages, Stan told a hack to keep an eye out in Marvel Superheroes number No. 1 for some more X-Men material, but there was none there. And he also wants to know if there'll be an X-Men annual next year, which is quickly becoming the let's get Gene back on the team and where are Bobby's booties of uh, this era of Letters Pages. Stan takes full blame for not having an X-Men story in Marvel Superheroes number No. 1, and he even offers Alex a no prize for pointing out his boner. Next up, we got the bullpen bulletins, and I actually had to look up a word in the uh, our little subheading here just to figure out how to say this thing. Um, and I think I got it, so uh, let's let's give it a goo here. Um, bullpen bulletins, also known as a sagacious smattering of scuttlebutt scoops and space-wasting small talk. And yes, I did spend like a full minute saying sagacious over and over and over again. I, I still thought I was going to screw it up, but we got through it. Okay, item... Hey, you know those Spider-Man and Fantastic Four weekly ABC series? Well, they're still coming. Not much more to say. Item. Um, Stan apologizes for goofing during his Brand Ech announcement. You see, he keeps calling the new book Brand Ech when it's actually called not Brand Ech. So, whoops. Item, you know those king-size specials? Well, they're still coming. Um, And you know how Stan keeps us on the hook by withholding what the uh, Spidey and FF special is going to be about? Well, he does that again here. No new info, but soon, faithful ones, soon. Our next item is full of did you know's. So, did you know that world-famous philosopher Marshall McLuhan did a write-up about Stan Lee back in his 1951 book, The Mechanical Bride? In it, McLuhan quoted a piece that Stan had written for Writer's Digest in 1947 called There's Money in Comics. In it, Stan says, quote, Don't write down to your readers. It is common knowledge that a large portion of comic magazine readers are adults, and the rest of the readers, who may be kids, are pretty sharp characters. They're used to seeing movies and listening to radio shows. A great deal of thought goes into every story, and there are plenty of gimmicks, subplots, human interest angles, and etc., And McLuhan mostly agrees, and he actually uses Stan's statement to discuss the merits and the definitions of things like high, medium, and lowbrow art and literature. I tell you, I want to try and dig that up somewhere. If I can find that, I will uh, share it here, as that sounds like a pretty interesting discussion that is still sort of relevant now. I think that could be a fun fun thing to dive uh, deep into. Uh, Did you know Roy Thomas just bought himself a pet ocelot and named it Gollum? Nerd, Uh, did you know that Groovy Gary, I'm guessing Friedrich, just sold about a zillion pop songs? Did you know Raymond Maurice has just joined the bullpen and will be scripting Doctor Strange and will soon try his hand at Submariner. Those are the did you knows. Let's hop into Stan's soapbox. Now this one's a little bit dicey. Stan comments that he's received a bunch of letters, probably a zillion or more, demanding that Marvel take a firm stand on current issues and events, including Vietnam, civil rights, and the increase of crime in America. Well, Stately Stan, he deftly dodges taking a firm stance on anything here. Instead, he says that uh, he's sure most of the readers know where Marvel stands on the issues, which is to say, whatever you think is right, which is a very, very Stanley thing to say. He also says that it's his belief that Marvel's first duty is to entertain and not editorialize. He asks the readers to opine on whether or not Marvel ought to editorialize more. Which, I mean, could you imagine something like this in current year? Anyway, we won't, we won't dive any deeper into that. Instead, let's hop into the Mighty Marvel checklist here. We're going to start with not brand ugh, number three, which features the origins of the four Bush versions of Thor, Hulk, and Captain America. Sounds like a... Wild read um, Fantastic Four number 67 introduces him You know, the other, other warlock uh, Spider-Man 53 features the return of Doc Ock With a big surprise on the last page Hmm. Avengers 44 has Captain America versus the Red Guardian Daredevil number 32 has D.D. F- still fighting uh, Cobra and Mr. Hyde Thor number 44 has Thor versus Forsung, Brona, and Magnir. Strange Tales 161 has Nick Fury versus a mystery villain and Doctor Strange in the Land of a Million Perils. Suspense number 94 has Shellhead striking back against the Titanium Man and Captain America versus Modoc. Tales to Astonish number 96 has the Submariner in the Savage Land and Hulk versus the Hordes featuring the High Evolutionary. Sergeant Fury number 46 is a shell studded salute to the unsung heroes of war. Finally, we have our reprint corner with Collector's Item Classics 11, Fantasy Masterpieces 10, and Marvel Tales number 10 as well. Into the MMMS box, where we got 26 newbies, including an Alan Milgram of Huntington Woods, Michigan. And I'm pretty sure this is our Al Milgram. Uh, He'd have been 17 or so right now, and he does hail from the Detroit area, so there you go. Now that's our issue. Um, We do have a little bit of mail, but I have a a bit of mouth fatigue here after my dental um, visit yesterday. And uh, I do have an appearance on another program later on today, so I want to, uh, what is it, Uh, rest my instrument for a little while here uh, rather than go on to, uh, you know, the tangents that I tend to go on. So let's hop right into the shout-out section here, thanking the folks who shared and spread the word about this show on social media. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Dave Schultz, Chris Bailey, 21st Century Boys, Joe Crawford, Billy D, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Ed Moore, and Wayne Burroughs. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Pat Sampson, Joe Crawford, Walt Neeland, and Billy D. And, of course, the wonderful and talented patrons at patreon.com slash xlapsed. Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. Thank you all so much, and I hope you enjoyed the latest uh, installment of x One, where Namor and the Human Torch finally met the first ever, at least as far as I know, uh, first ever Marvel crossover. So if you listened to it, I hope you enjoyed it, and if uh, if you're interested in checking it out, well, just pop on over to patreon.com slash xlapsed. Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, please feel free to do so. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can send an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com Or you can leave a voicemail at 623-396-JERK Blog post show notes at InfiniteEarths.com, Facebook group 90s X-Men Archives Chris And of course the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapsed All that said, I would like to thank you all so much For sharing some of your day with me today And until next time, as always I'll talk to you again real soon See ya!